The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I am very honored today to have as our guest Dr. Wes Jackson, who is the president of the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. And I wanted to have Dr. Jackson speak with us because coming up next weekend is the Prairie Festival, and it is not to be missed if anyone can make a nice long road trip. Dr. Jackson, welcome. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Tell me something. Uh, you've got incredible credentials. You have degrees in biology, botany, and genetics. You gave up a tenured professorship to come to Kansas to found the Land Institute. You've been a Pew Scholar, a MacArthur Fellow, and a Wright Livelihood Award winner. What is it that drew you to this work? Well, looking at the uh, soil erosion problem and the consequences of industrialized agriculture, and what it has done to destroy small towns, rural communities, a rural way of life. But the uh, the problems of soil erosion, chemical contamination of the countryside, the introduction of chemicals out there that our tissues have no evolutionary experience with seem to me not prudent. So it seemed to me that there's a huge problem associated with what is probably our most important basic need, food. Exactly. You know, I was just traveling through eastern uh, Colorado and western Kansas and saw the massive numbers of feedlot operations. And for miles and miles, really, there was nothing but concentrated animal or livestock agriculture, horrendous odors. I can't imagine that the soil would be very healthy there or the water. And yet I I recalled something that Kathleen Merrigan said at the Farm Aid Conference last year in St. Louis. She said that the industrial agriculture that we have today is this huge ship, and it's extremely difficult to turn that ship around. What would you say might be our first steps to getting that changed? Well, the first thing is to begin to think about both the necessity and the possibility. So what we need, I think, is a fundamentally different concept for agriculture in the interest of saving the soil and water resource. That's one thing, and that requires a major conceptual shift. Also, even probably more profound, is the fact that humans, uh, like all other organisms, are carbon-based. And we, for the last 3.45 billion years, whether we're bacteria or fungi or, or humans or whatever, we go after energy-rich carbon. And, uh, you know, you have a Petri dish with sugar on it, and uh, you put several, two or three species of bacteria on that Petri dish, and that they handle sugar, which is, uh, you know, is, is carbon, energy-rich carbon. And they just go to the edge of the petri dish. There'll there'll be some competition, but the goal is growth. And so here we are, humans, doing in a similar manner. We 
have gone into five pools of energy-rich carbon. The first is the young pulverized coal of the soil uh, that we started in on with the beginning of agriculture, and then forests uh, that we use to smelt uh, the ore for the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, so that's exogenous use of uh, energy-rich carbon. And then coal, uh, 250 years ago, that gave us the Industrial Revolution, and then 1859 is Drake's oil well in western Pennsylvania, and we've been going through that. And then we, of course, added natural gas for power uh, right after oil. So what we are are just like those bacteria on a Petri dish headed for the edge. And because we have the power of abstraction with our uh, wonderful minds, we invent an economic system that goes after you know, the energy that is available, that our technology makes available. And we, uh, now of course, do the same thing with water. So in western Kansas, uh, eastern Colorado, northwestern New Mexico, uh, the panhandle of Oklahoma, Texas, up into Nebraska, the fossil water, we go after that because we're mostly water. And we need energy, and so it's a totally extractive economy that is predicated upon humans showing no more restraint than any other species. And so the two things, one is the soil and the water, and the other is the need to practice restraint and end growth, both population and economic growth, and start learning how to live within our means. And that is a huge shift that has got to be turned. That's a tough sell, isn't it? very tough sell because of the way we got to where we are has been using both energy and materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I'm also troubled by the arrangements with the Gates Foundation to promote more of the same, more of this biotechnology, which is dependent, of course, upon applying pesticides. And it seems that 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 kind of thinking and that encroachment of the wrong kind of agriculture is spreading globally. Well, a couple of things to say. Number one, starting 10,000 years ago, when we started agriculture, you know, it, well, even now, essentially all of nature's ecosystems feature perennials, that is, plants that keep coming up every year, grown in mixtures. And agriculture features annuals and monocultures. And so we reversed that uh, way of being on the landscape in just sort of one short period Mm -hmm. of our time here as a species. And in order to get food with the annual monocultures, nature has to be subdued or ignored. So that's what we've been doing. And that is in us, and it has been in us for a long time. Then about 1600 comes the early stages of the scientific revolution. And what happens then is that priority is placed on parts over whole. It was a reductive way of looking at the world. Uh, Francis Bacon says you get power through being reductive. So what we have now is if you imagine the hierarchy of structure on planet Earth, There's the ecosphere, 
there than ecosystems, and embedded within ecosystems are organisms, and embedded within organisms are organs, and embedded within organs are tissues, and embedded within tissues are cells, and embedded within cells are molecules. So what you were saying about Monsanto is simply a playing out of the emphasis on science for 400 years. Mm-hmm. The two-molecule approach is what's applied on our landscape to deal with the soil erosion problem, namely the molecules of the herbicides and then the spliced-in gene for herbicide resistance, like Roundup Ready soybeans. So the zenith, the best that they have to offer, comes from the molecular end of the spectrum. So what we're arguing here at the Land Institute is we need to go toward the other end of the spectrum up to the ecosystem itself. And it isn't that we ignore the reductive molecular, but it ought to be in the service of the ecological. And so that's why we are working to make our the crops perennial, to come up with perennial uh, grains, and to put them in mixtures that mimic the vegetative structure, in our case, the prairie. So it's uh, that's another ship that has to be turned around because so we have two forces. We've got the 10,000-year-old natures to be subdued or ignored, and then we've got the history of science uh, since 1600, the placement of priority on part over whole. Dr. Jackson, are there any perennial crops right now that we are using uh, for food? No, not grains, not perennial grains. I mean, hmm. we uh, trees are perennials, right? But they represent like three percent of our total landscape. Now, and I... they're nut trees and so on, but uh, no herbaceous that is as opposed to woody mm-hmm. of perennial grains. So that's uh, one reason we're. We're mostly plant breeders here at the Land Institute working on that. Well, I noticed in the there was a Land Institute report that was published in June of 2009 called the 50-Year Farm Bill. And in that, um, you make mention of a, a wheat relative called Kernza. Right. It's a plant that we, we gave uh, a species, then a pyrin intermedium, or what's called wheatgrass, that we've been, uh, it's been a wild perennial, but not used as a as a grain, and we are increasing its yield, and we called it Kernza, with a trademark, so that we could be sure that we could make it available to the general population someday. That doesn't keep people from trying to uh, take it away from you, but yeah, that's that's one of our species, and uh, we've been make, made flour out of it, and everybody has just raved about how wonderful it is, and in fact, the nutritional profile is very, very good. What is the gluten level? Is it comparable? Very low. It does have gluten in it, but you can't make, you don't want to try to make bread out of it all by itself. Sure. It, you know, you use it for everything from muffins to pancakes to whatever it is that doesn't require gluten. Well, you write in this report that you expect it to be farmer ready in a decade. Are you still on target with that? Well, we still yes, we're optimistic about that yet. Uh, but when we say farmer ready, we mean to be, have farmers 
growing it and agronomists working with farmers, and that'll be a rather select few. We harvested 50 acres this year, and in fact, we just sent uh, 10,000 10, pounds of it off to, to be milled just here a couple of weeks ago. So uh, it, we're getting, it's still low yield, but we are getting about 100 pounds per acre per selection cycle. In other words, each round of selection has given us a yield gain of about 100 pounds. So there's no theoretical reason why we can't get the yield up there to make it a compelling alternative. Well, it's really exciting, and I wonder how long it will take before you know, somebody wants to take that seed and genetically modify it or take ownership of it. You know, all of the problems that farmers face today uh, with regard to contamination, even with some genetically modified grains, are you concerned at all about that? Well, we we can't allow ourselves to get bogged down in all the future sure. possibilities. Humans are going to be stupid and wicked for a long <laughs> time to come. That's why social evolution is important. But <clears throat> we can think of it this way. First of all, who won't be interested in it? The seed houses. Because as the perennial, it just keeps coming up every year. Sure. I mean, there'd be some seeds, but it's not like having to get seed corn for, you know, corn. Right. Seed, uh, corn every year from Pioneer or whoever. Right. Uh, so, no, number one, the seed houses. Number two, the farm machinery people won't be interested because the reward goes, well, there's just not many passes over the field. You would be harvesting once you got it planted. Number three, the idea is a perennial polyculture or mixture, like something similar to a prairie. Mm. And there with species diversity, you have chemical diversity, and it takes a tremendous enzyme system on the part of an insect or a pathogen uh, to give you the epidemic. So there's the pesticide people. And then within the mix, we're hoping that we can get improved biological nitrogen fixation so we don't have to be buying anhydrous ammonia mm-hmm. because that comes at a tremendous energy cost. Right. So the fertilizer people won't be interested. In other words, the reward goes to the farmer and the landscape uh, rather than the suppliers of inputs where most of the money is made in agriculture. So the the idea being that we want to figure out the way to move food from an extractive economy to a renewable economy in our most basic sort of way by trying to mimic enough of a natural ecosystem and bring the processes of the wild to the farm. In other words, these processes have been millions of years in evolving. And so to take advantage of the efficiencies that are inherent within the natural integrities of an ecosystem. So... The book of mine that just came out that's got some errors in it, unfortunately, <laughs> that I'm embarrassed by, is called Consulting the Genius of the Place. And the genius is nature's prairie, in this case. 
If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Wes Jackson, who is the president of the Land Institute based in Salina, Kansas. And after just this short time that we've been speaking, I am not surprised that Life magazine named you one of 18 individuals it predicts will be among the 100 most important Americans of the 20th century. Dr. Jackson, I, I really think this vision of moving from an annual agricultural system to one of per, that's perennial-based, I really do think it's brilliant, and it really has to be the answer in a society that that really no longer can or should be dependent upon fossil fuel. Yes, and we must remember that soil is more important than oil, and soil is as much of a non-renewable resource as oil. Mm. So we need to get that straight. But we need to be clear about that. Well, the Land Institute website has some disturbing images of erosion, and yep. if anyone has doubt about about the problems that we're facing, I know the Gulf of Mexico too has been called the Gulf of Iowa because of so much soil that has that has run down there, as well as the pesticides and the fertilizers. So it seems to me that everyone should be getting behind this idea. What are the barriers? Well, I think the primary barriers are the barriers that come from uh, living within a concept. I mentioned the idea that nature is to be subdued or ignored, and here we're saying we got to look to the way nature has worked. We're wanting to bring the broad discipline of ecology and evolutionary biology to inform a research agenda for agriculture. That's one. And the second, of course, is that history of science itself in which we have been increasingly reductive in the way we think about the world. The fact that the best way now that they, that they have to save soil, establishment agriculture, is the two-molecule approach. In other words, if you have no-till, well, that's good. So to have no-till, though, you got to poison the soils and the water. And then you have the gene for Roundup Ready, soybeans or corn or whatever. So what we're saying is is that you can even look on those fields and see soil erosion. I mean, I've got good examples of soil erosion on minimum till, no till. And the problem is is we're stuck with the annual. And as long as we've got the annuals, it's going to be a Sisyphus effort. We're going to keep pushing against that stone, and it's going to keep rolling back. Mm. So we've got the, we've, we've, we're now at the moment in which, well, we got 7 billion people now. I'm 74 years old. The population has tripled in my lifetime and doubled since John F. Kennedy. And the uh, energy consumption is going up. We're moving rapidly to the edge of the Petri dish. The 10-year-old, for instance, has lived through a quarter of all the oil ever burned. A quarter. The 22-year-old, 54%. So we're at this exact moment in history in which the speed of our uh, movement to the edge of the Petri dish, featuring Petri dish economics, is at the core of the problem. And people need jobs. And so, uh, you know, we'll, we, we just keep spending more energy and more of the soils. So what we need to do is figure out a way to have a soft landing. Mm. And that's the reason that we came up with this 50-year farm bill, is to start, uh, we don't want to stop anything all at once, but we want to start a tendency and figure out how to downpower 
and we need to down power fast, partly because of climate change. Absolutely. That was on my list to actually to talk about with regard to agriculture is climate change. I was recently speaking to a farmer in southwest Missouri who said within 20 years of farming, she can no longer grow the same kinds of crops that she grew 20 years ago, specifically kale. It's, it's no longer cold enough to produce a really healthy crop of kale. And I don't know that we're really prepared to switch over and deal with uh, not only changing our crop mentality, but also changing the, the ways in which we deal with pests. Right. Well, that's true. I mean, there's, there's what, what, <laughs> this, this conceptual change is very important. I mean, I don't know, I'll, uh, mildly dangerous to put this out here, but uh, I'll say it. Kathleen Rain is a poet, was a poet. She's dead now. Uh, she was, her patron was King, uh, was Prince Charles. And she was commenting on the life of the poet T.S. Eliot. And here's what she said. What Eliot has shown us is that the statement of a terrible truth carries with it a source of grave consolation, knowing that that is just uh, a part of a much larger whole. So the big question for us is, what is that much larger whole of which all of these problems are mere derivatives? And it's the way we think about ourselves living in this world. And so that's the... I think that is going to be the problem. If we identify ourselves as creatures that measures its progress by how much stuff we have mm-hmm. and how much throughput we have, how much money we have. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, it's hard to keep money out of carbon trouble. Right. Uh, so we've got to think about in, improving our social relationships with one another and cooperating more, and sharing more like what we did back in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Because if, if, if we can re- essentially redefine progress, so but we've got to look at having progress against growth of a material and energy uh, sense. And I like to think of it like a library. you got a finite amount of shelf space. If you want to add a book, another book has to come out. And it's possible to improve that library. But the culture will then have to come together and say, yes, I think that book should go in, and then maybe they vote on it. Well, then that actually has the potential to improve a culture. And so we move away for something more deeply resonating and less accommodation of the shallow and the conventional. Dr. Jackson, we have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that we let everyone know about what they can anticipate at the Prairie Festival. Oh, well, good. Yes, well, the Prairie Festival begins on Friday evening, the uh, 24th, the last weekend of the month of September, and uh, we've got a great lineup of speakers, uh, Wendell Berry, the poet, novelist, essayist, farmer, he farms with horses, and I think one of the great minds of our time. Uh, another is Sandra Steingraber. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is the one that's written a book called uh, Having Faith, and the other, I think, is Living Downstream. That's right. 
It has to do with her uh, carrying her child. And, well, I'll let people look into her books. And then uh, Josh Farley is a um, steady-state economist that's uh, much in the thinking of Herman Daly, who's uh, written on economics of the steady state. And then uh, Kent Wheelie, the founder of Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa. And let's see, who else? I guess that's about it. That uh, is we a also full have slate. a wonderful artist that will be displaying in our gallery out in the Red Barn. We're expecting, I don't know, eight or 900 people here. There are a lot of people who want to come in here, especially Wendell. Absolutely. Oh, and uh, Scott Russell Sanders, who is a novelist, a uh, writer on agricultural matters, and uh, teaches at Indiana University, uh, another great mind. So it's gonna, it's kind of an intellectual hootin' nanny. <laughs> That's a great and, way to uh, describe be it. People camped out, and we'll have good food. We'll be serving bison burgers. We have about thirty head of bison out on our prairie. Oh. And so you'll be able to come and see the standards against which we judge our agricultural practices. You'll be able to see our research plots, and unfortunately, our scientists, two of our scientists. <laughs> we'll be coming back from Australia from an international meeting on plant breeding involving perennials, and two of our scientists are in Washington, be in Washington. But you know there will be some of us around here, and uh, we can carry the load for those that happen to be off. Uh, unfortunately, doing other things. Uh, Dr. Jerry Glover is a AAAS fellow this year, and his wife Cindy, Dr. Cox, is uh, she is a plant pathologist here. And um, uh, so, anyway, we uh, uh, you'll still be able to have tours and see the research plots. And it's just a jolly good time. Well, it sounds wonderful. And if anyone is interested in reading about agroecologist Jerry Glover, there was a wonderful article about him in National Geographic, and that is online. We are out of time. I just want to mention that we have been speaking with Dr. Wes Jackson, who is the president of the Land Institute based in Salina, Kansas. Get out to the Prairie Festival if you can. It starts September 24th with a barn dance in the evening. And there will be, as Dr. Jackson said, an intellectual hootenanny for the, for the remaining days. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson, for your time and your insight into making this world fit for human inhabitation. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to be over at Columbia, Missouri sometime this year, I know, giving a talk. Oh, well, wonderful. I'll look forward to meeting you then. All right. All right. Thank you very much for listening to Food Sleuth Radio, which is brought to you in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, at KOPN Studios. Thank you, Dr. Jackson. Thank you.